1: As this episode airs, it is early June of 2020. It has been a week of unrest. It has been a week of anger and sorrow and a week of hope. Jen and I felt it was important to bring back an episode that we aired earlier this year a conversation with chandra white cummings who is a lawyer and an activist and in that episode we talked about black boys and mental health and the black community and we talked about our own lack of knowledge and our desire to be more connected and understand more the challenges that the black community faces so We are choosing to re-air this episode, this conversation with Chandra White Cummings. And I hope that it will, I hope that you will listen and maybe discover some new information, inspiration, and insights. Meanwhile, we are sending you our love and our thoughts and hope that you also can find some ease during this stressful time.
2: Welcome to On Boys, real talk about parenting, teaching, and reaching tomorrow's men. We're your co-hosts, Jennifer L.W. Fink of BuildingBoys.net and Janet Allison of BoysAlive.com. Between 2001 and 2017, suicide rates have been climbing. They have climbed for boys. They have climbed for girls. They have climbed significantly for Black boys. Black boys ages 13 to 19, their suicide rate increased by 60% in those years. And for children ages 5 to 12, Black males are committing suicide at higher rates than any other racial or ethnic group. Think about that. 5 to 12 years old. We've talked about mental health and suicide on this podcast before, and we will keep revisiting it. This is such an important topic, but we can't ignore those statistics and we felt the need to dive in a little bit more deeply and talk about what is going on with black boys' mental health and how we as individuals parents, teachers, and community members can work together to support Black boys' mental health. We are thrilled to have with us today Chandra White-Cummings. Chandra is a mother of two grown sons, now I believe 23 and 31, and she is a lawyer and has served as a policy fellow for Moms of Black Boys United. Chandra, welcome.
3: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you a thousand times. Thank you so much. I truly Truly appreciate it. And I do want to say that um, it's a special privilege to be invited into the dialogue, into the conversation, because oftentimes you may have noticed this, uh, both of you, that um, there's a lot of discussion going on about all of these topics: suicide, mental health, emotional wellness, um, stigma, all of those things. And much of it um, centers around what's going on in the African-American and other uh, communities of color. However, often um, it is the sad, unfortunate case that African-American women, moms, don't get invited into these conversations. Um, We are on the sidelines unless and until there's something uh, to be, quote, taken care of. Mm -hmm. So you've got to come down to this facility. Um, You need to meet with, you know, the church youth group. I mean, whatever the case may be, something is wrong. But now I have this wonderful opportunity. I'm so grateful. I so much appreciate it to actually talk sort of in a somewhat proactive sense about these topics. So thank you.
2: We appreciate you sharing your expertise and your experiences with us. And it feels like a a difficult topic to address. Janet and I are two white women who have no experience being black or raising black children. So we have limited expertise. I can look at the statistics. I can't tell you the lived experience. And I know as well that there is racism certainly has a tremendous effect on black boys' mental health. And at the same time, there are all the other factors that affect mental health. It's not always just racism. Like there's all these entangled things. So help us understand some of the interplay of these factors and why black boys struggle with mental health and why we as a society have failed to respond to that.
3: Whoa. That's a big one. All
2: right. That's a big question. And and I would even encourage maybe
1: a bigger bird's eye view in the, just the acceptance and access to mental health within communities of color. And the generational, I mean, for my parents, like you would never talk about going to a therapist at all. Mm -hmm. No, 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 no. Mm -hmm. Wasn't done. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, just culturally, like what is the messaging around mental health and seeking help and admitting that, hey, I'm struggling and then maybe go into deeper.
2: I feel like now Janet and I will just sit back because that's enough questions. Go all right. <laughs> yeah. We got 40 minutes.
3: Uh, go. Okay. <laughs> well, no, those are all um, fair questions and they're the questions that everybody just about really um, is asking. Uh, so here we go. Let me just start by saying that I think going back to Jennifer's question, I think that mental health for black boys, and really, if I want to broaden it out for just a moment as by way of context, for the African American community is um, pretty complex. It's pretty layered. um, But it doesn't mean that it's strange or odd, or, you know, we're sort of um, on the ends of the bell curve in terms of normality. And what I mean by that is that, Black boys really, and this is part of the message that African American mothers and the community want to get out. Black boys, in many, many senses are boys. Yeah. They have some of the very same issues, concerns, challenges, loves, hates as other boys do. And see, I, I had to catch myself because I almost said regular boys. Ah. So you see, the messaging even seeps in subconsciously with us as parents. So as as any other boy. They have a lot of the same uh, life experiences and life concerns. But I think what has happened is because of stereotyping, um, because of stigma, because of colorism and racism, this is how, and I'm so I'm gonna answer your question at the same time, get uh, it. So this is how, in the largest sense, racism comes into raising and dealing with the mental health of Black boys, is that because of the overlay of historical ideologies about Black families, it puts a pressure on all of the members of a Black family in different ways, meaning Black moms, Black dads know that their boys are, in many ways, just like any other boy. Mm-hmm. But because they're black boys, now we've got another layer that we're dealing with. And so we do something that um, a lot of us are trying to get conversation around, which is we over pathologize our own kids. Uh-huh. So everything they do, every move they make, every you know, little blip that we see on the radar of their life, it gets magnified and blown up to something that it really isn't. So if your kid, you know, comes home and, you know, he throws his book bag on the sofa, he stomps back to his room and he slams the door. You're like, oh, my God, Um, he's bipolar. He's, um, you know, something's wrong with him. And then you immediately go into like lockdown mode because you think, oh, gosh, I don't want anybody to know about this. You know, I don't want anybody to think my kids, something's wrong with him. I don't I don't want to make him think, I think something's wrong with him. But in the back of your mind, you're fighting all of these things. And so black boys walk around with this double burden of trying to just be normal boys,
0: mm-hmm. you know,
3: without all of this, oh, ov- super of baggage. <laughs> Can I, I ask really a question? It is. Yeah.
2: Is some of that uh, from a healthy and historically appropriate fear because as a parent of a black boy you know that the reality is that your son is not going to get the break or the oh he's just a kid if he does something in the community do you feel like sometimes the community is hard on these boys and and a little hyper reactive because trying to keep them safe, not giving them space necessarily to be just boys.
3: The short answer to that is yes. I do think that has a lot to do with it. You know, uh, Black mothers, especially um, since, uh, you know, factually can't get around it. A lot of us are raising uh, Black boys uh, without parental, without a father involvement, Mm -hmm. without close father involvement. Mm-hmm. whether that be in the home or out of the home quite frankly <laughs> mm-hmm. um without close father involvement so um that means a lot of this emotionally falls on a mother so all of that fear all of that you know hesitation all of that is heaped now onto her and she carries that and so yes she feels afraid you know i talked to my I'm afraid for my son you know to walk out the door i'm afraid for him now to you know go play like he normally did I worry all day when he's in school, you know, you hear this over and over and quite frankly, it's exhausting and it's debilitating emotionally to the parents and to the caregivers. But just in my experience, um, what I have found helps mitigate that is, first of all, I have a faith system. So I have to, I have to speak to that because that's a real thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and in my view, that's also a real thing that has really contributed to what we're experiencing in the black community in terms of this apparent explosion in mental health concerns for black kids in general, because, and I'll, and this is why, because back in the day, like when I was growing up, you, you, it wasn't that anybody was quote afraid necessarily to talk about mental health or afraid to send their kids to therapists It's that it really wasn't necessary. Because if I had a problem, if I had an issue, my family was at intact, meaning they were available to me. Mm-hmm. So I could go to my mother and say, uh, yeah, something's not right here. For example, I'll give you a really personal example, but I want to make the point. When I was um, in elementary, no, it was when I was in middle school, I was stalked by a guy because I used to go to the library by myself after school and wait for my mom. Well, he started stalking me. Well, I went to my mom mm-hmm. and I said, some creepy guy is hanging around and I don't know him and I don't think he's in our neighborhood. But my point is I had a place to go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And more than that, my mother had a place to go mm-hmm. because if she got overwhelmed, she would go a- back, out back and talk to her best friends who lived in three row houses right behind us. Yeah. So the communities and neighborhoods were tight. There was an um, exceptional amount of accountability. That's the other thing I think that is very important to remember is that we have lost many of the protective factors that mm-hmm. really shielded our kids from having really to even think about needing to go to a therapist. So in terms of access, I mean I understand that issue and I understand the narrative behind it, but you're you're looking at a community that that is really foreign to not necessarily because it's like oh gosh, you know, if you go to a therapist, you're you're awful. It's because it's new to us having to even think about talking to somebody outside of our family, our church or our friends about things like that. If that makes sense, absolutely makes sense. Yeah.
2: It does. And it's a thought provoking point that really makes you think as our communities have changed, as our families have changed, and and people are more disconnected from one another Mm -hmm. and live further apart, and Mm -hmm. people have to work more simply to support the family. Yes. Those connections have kind of fallen apart. And so, one of the reasons why we're struggling. And you mentioned, you know, your mom needing that support too. Yes. It's not just our kids that need support. When the kid is stressed, the, the parents are stressed, everybody needs support.
3: Exactly. And truth be told, the dads need support too. <laughs> you know, at the whole system, the whole ecosystem needs um, support. And again, back in different times, um, because of what you said, the connectedness, Connection is probably the biggest protective and remediating factor because even if once something happens, if it doesn't prevent it, once something does happen, um, connection and connectedness is really like a bomb on these boys' souls Mm -hmm. and they they need somebody that they can go to, that they can um, talk to. And again, that's like any other boy. Yes. Boy, every boy needs somebody that they can go to and talk to, but you know somehow we've ca- we've managed to carve out this little odd space in you know society that oh these black boys they need we make it sound like it's something special when we talk mm-hmm. about them like they need something different you know they they really don't <laughs> they really don't right
2: you know one thing that um, Janet and I have talked about in previous podcasts is that often for boys anxiety depression, stress can manifest as anger, frustration, irritation. That can happen for anybody. It can happens for me too. And I'm Mm -hmm. female, but more commonly with males in large part because their social conditioning says that's how you express strong emotion. Mm -hmm. But there's this tendency of society to see those things in boys as signals of danger and respond that way rather than with compassion. My perception is that it seems that's often magnified with black boys. There is this stigma and stereotype and people are far more likely to assume that an angry black boy is trouble than that he needs connection.
1: Yeah, and I think this is happening, I mean, we see this in schools and my concern for these boys is not only their boys being taught by women, mostly, Mm but often they are boys and black boys being taught by white women who yes. don't understand the the importance of the connection of the community and that community accountability also that everybody's looking out for everybody else. Your aunt or your cousin or somebody knows what's what you're doing. And we've lost that for all of our kids in, in yes. our dispersed communities. But I have great concern for especially little boys in school because they are being expected to do things outside of what they are developmentally ready to do academically Mm -hmm. and coming into kindergarten and sitting on a little carpet square. This Mm is not how our boys are designed. And I wonder that for a white female teacher that it can be kind of scary to have Mm -hmm. these boys that are not falling in line, not sitting still and have so much energy and Mm -hmm. that exacerbates the problem and continues it right up the line.
3: Yes, um, I would tend to agree with you and I definitely um, share your concern um, I've been doing substitute teaching, actually. Oh, bravo. Um, and that is an experience unto itself <laughs> <laughs> uh, because, you know, you're temporary. The kids know you're temporary. You know you're temporary. So a lot of the emotional mechanisms that you have at your disposal when you're the regular teacher, you do not. And also a lot of the disciplinary type things you might be able to do, you do not. So... I definitely see what you're talking about, especially for the little ones. You know, they are coming in to this structure and system because that's definitely what school is about, especially now. They're coming into the structure and system where they are definitely expected to toe the line and behave you know, and do what they're supposed to do when they're supposed to do it. But a lot of that involves sitting paper, pencils um, for long periods of time. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's very, very difficult. So what happens though, is that even at the preschool level, we see that the responses to that same behavior begin to diverge. So the little white boy who is having trouble sitting, being quiet. And let me just say, you know, there's like a, a um, some kind of wrong stereotype we have that boys aren't talkative. They are the chattiest <laughs> ever. <laughs> they talk so much. I mean, they should have been at my constantly. house last night for supper. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they talk constantly. I'm always after the boys about talking it's like oh my gosh people don't understand this at all they think the boys you know the strong silent type begins early they talk i mean until the cows come home but anyway this episode is sponsored by
2: by heart babies need to eat and whether you breastfeed or bottle feed use formula combine all of the above you need options we wanted to let you know about by heart baby formula So if you need baby formula for your baby, consider BuyHeart. New customers can get 10% off your first order by using code ONBOYS at BuyHeart.com. That's B-Y-H-E-A-R-T.com slash podcast, and it is 10% off your first order. Byheart.com slash podcast. This is a limited time offer, and additional terms and conditions may apply. We all know that vitamins can help fill nutritional gaps in our diet. But a lot of us don't like to take vitamins because we don't like swallowing pills. How do you feel about that, Janet?
1: There's some days that I look at my vitamins and go, yeah, I should take those. I'll do it later. But I'll tell you what's changed. I have gotten Easy Melt Vitamins. I have the D3 and I have the B12s and a multivitamin. And I just pop them in my mouth and they dissolve and I don't have to think about swallowing a vitamin.
2: Yeah, and you don't necessarily need water either to have on hand to get this big vitamin down. Yeah,
1: no. And they taste good and they're sugar free. They melt quickly. The reason they melt is because of plants not chemicals.
2: Ah, plant-based nutrition. For a limited time only, you can receive a free, free three-month supply of Easy Melt Vitamin D3 with your first purchase. To claim your free D3, visit try.easymelts.com slash onboys. That's try, T-R-Y dot easy melts, E-Z-M-E-L-T-S dot com forward slash on voice.
3: My point is that the response begins to diverge. So little, um, you know, Johnny, who is uh, mm, sort of twisting and turning in his seat and fidgety and tapping his foot and, you know, bothering his neighbor, <laughs> you know, uh, poking himself with a pencil. and. All the things, <laughs> all these things that boys do that when you think about it, you have to laugh because it's like they're so weird. But anyway, <laughs> um, all of the things that little Johnny is doing, you know, if little, you know, Bobby does it over here, the response that's different is what matters. Yes. And that is what causes their lives to go on different paths because Johnny is looked at as, oh, boys. You know, they just what are you gonna do? They don't want to keep still, they're always doing weird things with their bodies, but when they look at Bobby, it's like, oh, um, he's just disobedient, you know, he's disrespectful, he just doesn't listen, he doesn't want to learn. Um, you know, he all of these things, and you gotta ask yourself, why? Yes, why do they see that same behavior so differently? And it really comes down to what many, many, many people still do not want to admit, which is prejudice, racism, and stereotypes. Mm -hmm. They see the same behavior differently. I've been doing a lot of work on implicit bias. Mm -hmm. And it's very interesting because police officers, um, there's not a lot of it, not nearly enough, but some of it has been done uh, testing with police officers and law enforcement folks. And The results are pretty consistent in this uh, measure that police officers see and view and perceive a black, unarmed man as dangerous as a white man with an AK 47. Oh my God. They see him at the same level of danger. Now, to our rational Western minds, that seems to make no sense. It's like, obviously Mm -hmm. there's not the same level of danger, but they don't see it that way. They see that black man, even though he's not, and these are tests where it's clear that the person is unarmed. It's not like, you know, where it's that close case. They thought it was a cell phone or something. No, the person is clearly unarmed. It's it's amazing.
2: It's one of those things where nobody wants to admit that they're prejudiced. Nobody wants to admit that they're biased. And so if we sit and we talk about this scenario, unarmed black man, white man with an AK-47, it sounds so obvious which is the greater threat. But the problem with implicit bias is that it's snap decisions and it gets in our heads based on things we hear and learn and experience growing up. And so it's the kind of thing where if you were walking down the street and you see a group of black teenagers coming towards you and you suddenly feel a flash of fear, that's implicit bias right there because you have picked up a narrative along the way that that equals danger
3: yes but see in my view what needs to happen it and this is across all communities i would contend not just white communities because um all communities and everybody i feel have some level of implicit bias about something and someone and it's human it's human right but what we but here's the difference uh, in my view, African American and other uh, sort of historically marginalized communities, I think we have more practice at interrogating our thoughts and our understandings and perceptions about things because we have learned through living in this country through year, hundreds and hundreds of years of first outright slavery and then, you know, Jim Crow and then, you know, all these sort of. Less obvious, but definitely as pernicious forms of discrimination, we have learned under threat of death (laughs) almost to think about what you're thinking about and to ask yourself, What am I really seeing? What's really going on? I think that because of the position that whites have historically enjoyed, maybe there's not as much practice doing that. Like, so when you see someone, you see those teenagers coming. And you think to yourself, and like you said, it's a flash, whether there's, whether there's, whether you're in a quote dangerous situation, like a police officer would be or not, it's still a very flash Mm -hmm. and reflexive thing, but the trick and the key is to stop yourself and say, whoa, wait a minute. Why am I thinking that? What is it about them? That's making me feel like they're dangerous. Is it because there's a group of them? Is it because of the way they're dressed? Is it because of what they're talking about? You know? What is it really? And if we aren't, um, because truth be told, we could all use a little mental health help. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, in my opinion, you know, raise in my hand. Uh, <laughs> we could all use a, you know, maybe a couple hours on the couch. But um, the point is that we have to be able to be honest with ourselves and say and answer the question honestly, because it's not just about the interrogation; it's about the explanation. So when you ask yourself that question and you're just going to just, you know, just as reflexively say, oh, it's because they are dangerous because everybody, you know, knows that they're dangerous. You see them on TV, but okay, well then stop at that point. Okay. What about TV? What do I see on TV? Is that stuff real? You know, is it any possibility that a lot of that could be manufactured or manipulated in any way to make me think? something that's not true. We've got to start digging into these things for ourselves. And the other thing that will help tremendously is if people simply get to know other people, just get to know real live black boys, (laughs) get to know their moms, their dads, their aunts, their cousins, their God moms, their play cousins, you know, all of this kind of stuff, just get to know people.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I I want to s- kind of stay with this topic right now and thinking about, and Jen and I have talked about this on the show before, about how there is this perception of African-American boys that they are perceived to be older than their chronological age. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a thing. It's been yeah. studied. I just am curious about your
3: thoughts on that. That also um just like some of the other stereotype typical narratives that we've been talking about they're more dangerous you know that's one of them which is that they're they look or appear or they're perceived to be older than they really are it's kind of like it goes in the group of these types of messages that uh, black boys are stronger they're bigger they're faster Um, there, you know, and a lot of that has to do with athletics and, you know, all this other stuff, but a lot of it, like, what would the genesis of that kind of thought be? Who would be the type of person who would have been in a position to develop that kind of thinking? Slave masters, because slave masters see, and people who are catching slaves, not, okay, so, so slave catchers you got to go back a little bit further. Slave catchers, so people who are capturing people and bringing them through the transatlantic uh, slave trade, and then slave masters, so people and overseers, people who are running plantations, systematic subjugation of Black people. They're really the first ones in terms of this country that would be in a position to form that kind of narrative why and how because when you're running at when you're chasing somebody who knows you're trying to kill them, you don't go right they might be faster than you because they're trying <laughs> to get away. yeah <laughs> okay It's not that they're these superhuman metahuman type people. They're people being pursued, people who you know somebody's after them. okay. but now when you bring them back over to this country, they're being made to do inhuman tasks, and it's like, oh, but they don't complain. Well, they don't complain because they're going to get whipped if they do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So all of this has a reason. But let's be honest, this country even still has trouble talking about slavery. Yes. Oh, yeah. Like, we still have trouble, even everybody still gets that little bit of discomfort. You know, so things like the 1619 Project,
0: mm-hmm. um,
3: going way back to when I was in, you know, Little Roots, um, all twelve years a slave. To me, that was the best slave narrative movie ever made. um Twelve years a slave. But anyway,
2: I don't want to leave. I don't want to leave that topic because okay, when we're talking about mental health, in mm-hmm. recent years there has been increasing acknowledgement that trauma plays a role in mental health. Yes, that people who experience abuse, neglect, assault, you know, traumatic experiences as a child, that that obviously it influences your brain it influences how you react i can't imagine a trauma greater than slavery right and that that's got to be part of the picture here and i feel like we as a country aren't going to make a lot of progress unless we can start wrestling with
3: that oh yeah we've got to wrestle it to the ground i mean because you you cannot you cannot deal with any of these super complex things, unless you're first willing to even look at it, you have to look at it and not in a self-serving way, not in a way that makes you look like the hero or the victim when you're not, or the um, pioneer. It's like, they were not pioneers. They were slave holders, Mm-hmm. Um, we have to start calling things what they were and are. This was not some romanticized, you know, a- a antebellum South and all of that narrative. That's why we have trouble with the Confederacy thing because they were successful in creating an alternate narrative to slavery. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, women in petticoats and drinking mint juleps. Okay. But you've got other women who are just as much women. In fields doing backbreaking work, in the having their day. children sold from yes. them, yes, oftentimes literally snatched yes. out of their hands. Literally, mm-hmm. so some people will say, though, okay, there's two trauma kind of has you know two faces and a double, it's kind of a double edged sword. Because, on the one hand, people will say, and I've heard this said more than once, uh, I don't get it, like does it trauma have to be kind of contemporary to the person? I mean, how are people that are walking around now, why are they quote, and they'll put air quotes around traumatized. How are they traumatized by people they didn't know things that did not happen to them directly. Um, things that really are so removed in time that how could it possibly be affecting them? Well, Two answers to begin with. There's a couple answers, but two answers to begin with. One, we understand even now when we're not talking about slavery, but if we're talking about um, violence, let's just use violence. Mm -hmm. We know, and those who know tell us that you don't have to be the one who's shot to be traumatized by that. Yeah. Mm. Okay. You could hear a story from, you know, Paw that tells you about, you know, Uncle Joey who got shot, blah, blah, blah. And that kid is going to feel traumatized by that. Mm-hmm. Or you could be with Joey when he gets shot and it's not you, but it's still traumatizing. Yeah. So there is secondary trauma, but somehow we, all of a sudden we can't understand mm-hmm. that when we're talking about sleeping. Secondly, there is this thing called epigenetics and I don't want to bog the podcast down and get all technical about that. I know you guys understand what it is, but epigenetics is really important to understand because it explains a lot of how generational trauma is real. Um, Our genes, literally, some of them, not all of the genes, but there are genes that turn off and on based on certain stimuli. Mm -hmm. So a lot of these genes get turned on and they never get turned off.
1: Yeah. Mm
3: -hmm. Yeah. Um, In Black, you know, ancestry, so to speak. Mm -hmm. But the point is, and this is one of the points I do want to make. All of this is stuff that black families go through every single day of our lives. We've got to be, you know, all of this stuff is swirling in your head. You know, Um, it's incredible. And if you, as an adult, don't have some type of (laughs) coping or processing mechanism, now we've got double trouble. We've got many layers of issues that we have to try to deal with, you know. This kid, um, Bryce Gowdy, that just took his life with, you know, by stepping in front of this train. I mean, I literally thought I was going to just crumple up in a ball and maybe not be get, able to get out of bed for a couple of days because I just kept thinking of how they described his family situation. You know, here he is about ready to go off to college, um, to, to play football for a really prominent program. And he steps in front of a train. I mean, that that's, if that doesn't make you think nothing will.
1: Yeah.
3: You know, and they talked about how he tried to talk to his mom, he reached out to his uncle. His mom, you know, he tried to hold his mom's hand and she said, "I wasn't holding his hand." Because and that's that's not an uncommon response because the mother is dealing with so much. She's like, "I I can't take on yeah. whatever it is you're dealing with right now. I can't take it on because I've got to try to keep myself together." So, this is like a seriously multi-layered thing but it doesn't mean that there's not solutions to it and there's not answers to it. Some of the answers that are not real answers are people coming in to, quote, study us all the time. That is getting on everybody's last nerve, especially when it seems like somehow Black researchers can never get funding to do this stuff. Right. Um, oh, only white researchers can get funding to do this. And it's it just makes me so mad. <laughs> Yeah, makes me so bad. And I do want to sort of just throw in here, since, since you're just letting me talk, um, I want to throw in here about things that people do, you know, things that people can do mm-hmm. to try to just begin to make dents, right? One of them is don't treat Black boys like they're some kind of endangered species. Don't coddle them. Don't let them get away with murder crap that you wouldn't any other kid. If he is legitimately trespassing, <laughs> crossing the line, legitimately deal with him, but make it known and make it clear that it's just like I would anybody else. Yeah. Because it's the difference that's harming black boys, not the discipline, the difference mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: because they know at home they're going to get disciplined. There's going to be discipline of some kind. So Mm -hmm. it's not that they're so fragile and so, you know, delicate that you you can't um, say anything to them because no, it's that if they see that if Johnny is fidgeting or whatever, and he basically gets, you know, the explanation, but Bobby is fidgeting and he gets into the principal, that they know that. And they they take that that. up
2: so fast. Kids
3: can pick that up when they are five years old. And so it's the disparity that is the problem. It's not the discipline. And, and I, I'm going to harken to one of my favorite movies of all times, actually one of my older son's favorite movies, Remember the Titans, when Herman Boone is trying to explain to his assistant coach, don't be coddling these black players. If they miss a pass, get on their butts. And he's like, oh, I'm just trying to help them. And he's like, help them do what? He said, you know, if one of these white players messes up, I mean, you jump all over them like white on rice pun intended. He's like, but these black boys, you know, they miss a pass or miss a block. And oh, you know, you put your arm around them and pat them on the back. He said, no, you're crippling them. You're crippling them for life. That's what he tells his assistant coach. And it's true. So we're not looking for or really needing anybody to coddle the boys. Um, Accountability is very important. It makes them feel normal. (laughs) Like, Everybody else.
1: Yeah. But I I mean, back to the teacher in the classroom of those young boys, you know, there is this place of I'm a white woman and I don't want to be seen as like being prejudiced towards this black boy. So I tend to like, I'm not going to pounce on him as hard as I would the other, you know, so it gets so Mm -hmm. complicated because of my own implicit bias and my Mm -hmm. awareness of, oh, I I don't want to be called a racist. I don't want to be prejudiced. So, you know, so there's erring on the side of, oh, I'll just let that one slide. And I, you know, I won't hold him accountable. So Mm -hmm. it's it's like there is no there's it's what you said, double edged sword so complicated
3: yes i completely agree with you and honestly i really do um empathize with the situation because at the same token african-american women experience this the other way it's like oh You know, I don't want to be seen to be coddling him too much because, you know, then white people are like, oh, see, they don't know how to deal with their kids. You know, that's why their kids are running wild all the time. That's why they're in gangs. That's why they're violent, you know, all this kind of stuff. So you overdo it and you overshoot the mark because you're trying to make a point. We're all trying to make too many points um, and we're all putting each other under too much artificial pressure honest to God, if we could ever just come together and have more conversations like this, we would all see, you know what, this white teacher, she's dealing with the same emotions I'm dealing with. You know, she doesn't want to overdo it. She doesn't want to be perceived as something that she's not.
2: What both of you just said there too, is something that we talk about in other contexts. So often in parenting and teaching, we get caught up and we're responding and reacting to our stuff our stuff that's going on in our heads. So Janet, you were expressing the fear of being judged as a racist. And Chandra, you're expressing the fear of being judged as, you know, you don't have control of your kid. These are real fears and it's human. But if we can try and stop, recognize those thoughts in ourselves and pull back to the child and try and respond to what the child needs, that's always going to be better than getting our stuff mixed up in there. Hard to do. Easy to say, hard to do.
3: Yes, exactly. However, I would also say that the more we make ourselves do it, the more comfortable we become And then the more we actually do it, and then the more we're able to even talk to other people now and say, you know what? This is what helped me. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, This is what helps me, you know, deal with these things. Because as a single mother, you know, raising these two boys, I mean, it was like nobody's joke ever. I've dealt with some really serious situations, but I have to say that Going along, one of the things that has really helped me is really the things that I'm talking about. We have to maintain connection with these kids. You know, I always told my boys from a really young age, like I'm not just telling this to you, but you literally can tell me anything. Um, you literally can tell me anything. Now, it doesn't mean that there won't be a consequence from what you told <laughs> me, depending on what it is. But it it never means that you will have to sit and face something by yourself. That's what it means. That alone will mean the world to kids because over time, what they will come to see and understand is that because you care and they'll know that you care because you're willing to listen and because they can talk to you and tell you stuff. So because of that, they then perceive and interpret your discipline very differently. Mm
0: -hmm. It's not like, oh, it's this
3: ogre who hates me and she's coming down on me. Yeah. Um, it's like, oh, this is my mom. And she did tell me I could tell her anything. And she did tell me there might not be consequences. You know, so they have something to contextualize the consequences that they're dealing with. And that can operate in a teaching setting as well. It really can. You know, yeah. I learned a lesson. I had to remind myself of a lesson from yesterday because I did an um, all day thing with third graders. One thing I did very reflexively, which I was like, man, I I really feel almost like I should go back to that school and apologize to this kid. But I said something to him like in the open. He was doing a behavior that I know is really dangerous to any boys um, if they get into it, which is he started blaming something else. And he started blaming other people. He started blaming the situation. He was making all kinds of excuses for himself. And I sort of called him out in front of everybody. And what I should have done was just call him up yeah. um, and say, you know, it's not really the way to go. So, we, so to Jen's point, we all like mess up. Sure. But the point is, yeah. even how do we recover from those? You know, how do we go back to them and say, "Dang, I, that was not quite right." Yeah. Um, and I've had to do that to my son. Say, mm, yeah, I kind yeah. of overreacted on that.
1: Oh yeah. Um, so, Sean, yeah. just so kind of on that on that vein, is you talked about we need to reach out, we need to talk to each other, we need to talk about this, and I wonder what you can how you can guide us to opening these conversations with our African-American neighbors. And I happen to live in Portland, Oregon, and we have Mm -hmm. a very, shall I say, sordid past in our racial history, and we have Mm -hmm. definite racial differences in our very predominantly white community. But Mm -hmm. um, I live in a neighborhood that's mixed, and I love it. And I have a very good friend who's an African-American man. And I still, and, and we have these conversations, but I still would love your guidance in how do I open these conversations? Because it, it just feels awkward and uncomfortable. And yet I feel like you do. We have to have these conversations and we have to be awkward and uncomfortable and being willing to do that. but.
3: Ooh, how do we, how do we go there? My simplest and most honest answer is start by just asking, don't build it up to be like a big thing in your mind. Just if the, if you have a relationship, some kind of connection with this guy, start with him and say, Hey, you know, I had this conversation. She was a guest. You know, she made me think about this. I really want to get started. What, what should we do? What should we (laughs) do? Yeah. Or how can we do, you know, do things online. Um, online is a great place to put stuff out mm-hmm. because it takes away a little of the awkwardness because guess what? You know, you may not really know those people right. who respond to you right. and you don't have any vested interest in, you know, if they're trolling you or whatever, but we have to kind of spread the net, which mm-hmm. is to say, do different things. So talk to your friend that you already know, um, get his, you know, suggestion, you know, try not, and this this is, a, um, it, since you guys are friends, you probably won't feel this, but I, um, sometimes white people make black people feel like they're their test subject. And they, you know, you don't mean to make it feel that way, but it's just that we're so bombarded all the time mm-hmm. with, yeah, black people do this, that, and the third. It's like, oh my God, can I just let, please? though. I know that since you have a relationship with him, I'm assuming he won't take it that way, which will be great. Oh, no. And we have that these conversations
1: take- all the time, but I'm thinking about, you know, the the mom in Keokuk, Iowa, who is, oh, you know, right. like, I want right. to reach out and I want to have- Is that an actual place? I think it is. Huh.
3: Okay. Learn something. Wow. Indian, never heard of it. <laughs> Just but but I get your point. <laughs> like she's not where you are. She, you know, there's probably some differences.
1: Yeah, um, and this goes for you know Somali families, and 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 it's. And as I'm saying this, I'm thinking, you know, it isn't about like, I want to have this conversation about race with you. Right. <laughs> it's right about like, hey, let's have
2: coffee or let's have a play date at the park with the kids or, hey, is your kid struggling with this math homework? Yeah. Yeah.
3: Exactly. Yeah. You start always with your points of commonality. Yeah. And you try to not make yourself feel like, you know, a media maven who's trying to conduct a dialogue. You know what I'm saying? Like you're just Janet and you're just trying to talk, Yeah, you know, trying to talk to people. Um, you know, that's what I meant by not building it up. Cause we build things up so much mm-hmm. that it's like, it's not even like that. Yeah. Just, And I tell moms this, just talk to your boys, forget about what everybody says about this natural barrier between, you know, moms and their sons. Like they, they can't talk to their moms. Hey, that, that has not been my experience. I mean, sometimes I have to literally say, um, yeah, let's pick this up. <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, they get on a roll, they get on a roll. And I'm like, I have got some research I've got to get yeah. done. Yeah. So Shirey, um, they- you
1: are so, I, I was looking at your website and we'll put this in the show notes and you have just curated and written about so many different aspects of um, mental health and raising our boys of color, and I really want people, want our listeners to be able to connect and tap into your wisdom beyond
3: today.
0: Thank you.
3: Yeah, so Thank you so much. Where where can people find you if they want to see my written work? Uh, they, I would invite them to go to my site, which you clearly have. And it's uh, CWC Media Group.com.
2: Um, I will put my- that in the show notes. Awesome. And mm-hmm. Before we let you go, Chandra, I would like to hear a couple of your ideas on what we, individual listeners, can be doing, all of us, to support Black boys' mental health. We talked about it's a multi layered problem. Mm-hmm. None of us are going to do one thing and it's fixed. But what are maybe two or three things that we can do to step forward and help be part of positive change and support for families?
3: Awesome question. A couple of things I've already mentioned, which are um, connection slash relationship, get to know some people. The other thing I've also mentioned is accountability. And I always mention that as its own thing because it's like, it's just... I don't. I don't. I hate to say it's the most important, but it's certainly up there um, mm-hmm. in terms of important things that you have to do. But you can only usually exercise effective accountability in the context of some kind of relationship or contact. Mm-hmm. If you don't currently know black boys, black families, or whatever, then what I would say is um, get involved. So don't read white authors' books about black people. Uh. Read Black authors' books about their own stories. It's more riveting to read um, Shaka Zengor's book called Writing My Wrongs, which is where he talks about he was a 14-year-old kid. He got a little beside himself. He said some things to his mother that just weren't cool. He stayed out late. Well, she gave him a choice. He made his choice. He ended up becoming a drug dealer. He ended up in prison. So read that book, as opposed to, you know, reading something that somebody is saying about something.
0: Mm -hmm.
3: The other thing is read about people, not issues, because when you read about the people, you'll come upon the issues. So if you read his book, you will, you will learn about the criminal justice system. You'll learn about solitary confinement. You'll learn and what it does to people. You'll learn about what prison is really like just just read about the people Read and read about all kinds of different people. But if you want to focus on Black boys, I'm reading Chokehold by Paul Butler, which is about police brutality and the interactions between uh, law enforcement and Black men, exclusively Black men. He has a whole section where he talks about what it's like on the inside, what it feels like to be Oof. a black man, how it wow. feels to know that people are afraid of you. It's really awesome. So I'm I'm doing things like that myself, you know, as an African-American woman, I realized that doing the things I do, I, and because I love research, I too get caught up in reading what everybody else is saying. It's like, but what are they saying? Yeah, What are they, you know, what do they see as the issues for their own lives?
2: You know, Janet and I talk about, one of our challenges is that we are both women. I have never Mm -hmm. been a boy. I don't really know what the experience of being a boy in the world is like, which is why I had to learn a lot. I have four boys. I needed, I needed to know some stuff to effectively parent and relate to these humans that I was living with and responsible for. And so I I read because that was my Mm -hmm. closest way to enter into that. And I love mm-hmm. that you gave us so many titles and I will include as many as I can in our show notes. And if you want to send me some more links, that's, that's great because reading can give you these experiences, can bring you into somebody else's world. And you recognize that common and shared humanity, fear, joy, frustration, hope, longing. And you mentioned connection before we're right here. We're right back at connection. Connection is going to be the key. Exactly.
3: Exactly and also a lot of young people i know so this this doesn't just go for the adults who who need to learn it goes for some of the younger people too so Mm -hmm. you know younger people or whatever sometimes people don't read they're they're more movie people or stuff there's plenty of that too and again don't just go and watch you know tom hanks do a film about black men you know go and watch ava duvernay do one Mm -hmm. or john singleton who did uh, several movies about the black male experience. I mean, do things like that. You know, watch Jay-Z's documentary on Meek Mill, who was a black rapper in New York City. I mean, in some of these things, you know, white people just feel, they just feel naturally hesitant. It's like, oh, I don't, I don't necessarily want to read about that. You know what? I will be rapper. honest.
2: I <laughs> see <laughs> some of the commercials on TV and I'm like, I don't know if that's a movie for me. I don't know right. if... And then that makes me think about the opposite, you know, for years and years and years, it was all white movies, white movies, white movies. And of course there were a whole lot of people going, well, that's clearly not for me.
1: Right? Yeah. Right. I think it's again, and and I love this conversation. I think we're going to have to have part two, Chandra. It's such an important conversation. Thank you so, so much for your time and your insights, your wisdom and your
3: heart. Your heart just shows up big time. Oh, that's very gratifying to hear uh, because I do try to focus on people. Thank you so much again. I really appreciate you even asking me that is just like gold to me. Um, and I really am being sincere when I say, I hope we can, um, continue, you Mm, know, our, our connection. Definitely.
2: Thanks for joining us. We are Jennifer L.W. Fink and Janet Allison, and we are here to support you in parenting and teaching tomorrow's men.